Well, hello, 5 p.m. My name's Nick. If we're yet to meet, I'm one of the pastors here at church, and it is, it's always a privilege to be here to open the Word with you at 5 p.m. Our series in the book of Matthew is The Kingdom of Heaven. If you haven't yet got one of these booklets, they're a resource to you. They've got a bunch of things that will be helpful as we study this book, but particularly for right now, there is a section for each week. If you want to take notes to what God might be speaking to you, I'm not much of a note-taker, but I do love the idea that at the end of a series, you could just flick through a whole series and see what God was speaking to you week after week. So if you're interested in that, I'm going to put the welcomers on the spot. If you wanted to grab a book, feel free to chuck your hand up. I'm sure someone, a Rowena of some sort, might come and bring you a book or something like that, or a pen, or a Chris. Bless you, Chris. Bless you, brother. (laughs) If you're into it, chuck your hand up. But the title is Essential. The kingdom of heaven. When Jesus stepped into the world, especially in the book of Matthew, his first words of ministry, Matthew 4.17, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn away from the old things, the, the ways of this world, the ways of sin, the ways of evil, the ways of selfishness, and turn to the kingdom of heaven. Come back. Come back to God. Be restored. Be forgiven, be brought in, be brought near. Jesus came with an invitation that that shatters every expectation or desire for joy because it is the life that is truly life. He says, come and live as you were meant to live under the rule and reign of your delighting and beautiful heavenly Father. This is an invitation to life and joy, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be one with the God who made you, drawn into union with the Son. To be filled with His presence day by day, moment by moment, that you're never alone. Jesus says, I will never leave you as orphans. I'll leave you with my Holy Spirit. That the power that raised Jesus from the dead might be at work in your soul and in your life and in your corner of the world. This is what Jesus offers us when he says, repent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. We're afforded all of these beautiful things in relationship with God as we just look forward to the final moment. When Jesus will come again crowned, not with shame and a crown of thorns as he was on the cross, but he'll come in all of his blazing glory. The kingdom of heaven is the heartbeat of what Jesus came to bring and the heartbeat of our faith as Christians. And today, as we come to our second week in this series, in Matthew 13, Jesus just gives us six different parables that all begin with the same phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Because as much as everything that I've just described to you makes sense of the New Testament picture of the kingdom, Jesus is interested in the reality of what He is offering to filter its way from our head all the way down into our heart and to make sense of our lives. Do you remember that moment in biology or in chemistry or whatever class of science you did when you pulled out your microscope? Some of you are like, I hate science. I intentionally blocked this out of my memory, but you put, your, you put your slide under the microscope and you put your eye over it and you kind of look in and it's just a blurry mess until you're like, oh no, there's a spider coming out. It's actually just your eyelashes getting in the way. Until someone comes along and they start to dial it in for you and suddenly as you're looking, you see this intricate reality that was unseen before but now comes into clear focus such that we've made incredible advancements in the world because of what we could see through them. I think that's what Jesus is doing with these parables. He's dialing in our vision and our expectation of the world as we experience it 
to not just see it as everyone else does, but to see the kingdom that is here with us. But unlike a microscope, we're not here to observe. He invites us to be a participant, to receive and, and walk in this reality. There's this incredible verse. I only noticed it this morning, actually, as someone was reading it. Have, a, have you got your Bibles open? Look at chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Jesus is opening up his his storehouse of treasures, as we see in the last verse. And he speaks them to us in parables in this form that's sometimes a bit tricky to understand, but one that sticks in your mind and has its way with our soul, such that we might not just know truth, but we might experience and live a new way. And so all I, I don't have any grand plans for our afternoon. I just want to hear the parables that Jesus has for us. There's six of them. They sort of naturally fall into three categories. You see in the middle, there's the parable and the mustard seed and yeast. And they sort of speak to the, the subversive kingdom, the hiddenness of the kingdom. Then you move forward and you get the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl or the merchant. And it speaks to the pricelessness or the value and beauty of the kingdom. And sort of sandwiching both of them is the beginning, the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net. And Matthew has intentionally sort of placed these where they are. They share very common language around the the age to come, the blazing furnace and all of this crazy stuff. And they intentionally sort of sandwich them. And they sort of speak to the, the certainty of the kingdom or the direction of the kingdom as we sort of stand in this world and look ahead to what is coming. So I'd like to start in the middle, given that those two things bookend the whole thing, if that's okay. So if you haven't got your Bible open, please do. Matthew chapter 13, let's begin with the mustard seed and the yeast, the subversive kingdom. Verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Jesus' first hearers immediately know what's going on there. They're like, oh yeah, mustard seeds, I know that. I had to Google it. Mustard seeds, one to two millimeters in size. I can barely fit that between my finger and thumb without dropping it because I'm clumsy, maybe not like you. Tiny, smaller than an apple seed, smaller than a tomato seed absolutely insignificant and small, and yet when planted in the ground and and nourished in the way that it ought to be, flourishes into a tree that reaches up to about 10 meters high. The point is not that it's the biggest tree in the world, but that what from something so small would come forth something so incredibly huge. Now, this is the way of the kingdom. Things that seem insignificant, perhaps unseen or unimportant, ultimately grow and and burst forth in glory to eclipse all that is around them. Now, Jesus, He just models this beautifully in every ounce of His existence on this earth. He spent the first, you know, 30 years or so just living in absolute obscurity. No one knew Him. He was just the son of the carpenter. He lived in a small town and lived a small town life of obedience and holiness, such that when He finally came back in His ministry, they were like, hey, I kind of know you. You were that dude who was doing, building things, right? Now you're the Son of God? What's going on here? There was a bit of mismatch, right? Because he lived so much of his life just in the hidden place, in a normality, in, in obscurity. 
And even when he stepped into his ministry, as much as there was incredible power, there was, you know, resurrections, and there was healing, and there was exorcisms, all these sorts of things, his ministry ultimately kept pulling back off the accelerator. He said, don't tell anyone. I don't want to be made king. I don't want to jump forward too fast. He was intentionally moving forward in this pattern of the mustard seed, and he's calling the kingdom that same pattern. The quiet, seemingly unproductive life is the way of fullness and flourishing in the kingdom of heaven. The takeaway, I think the first takeaway that we should look to this is that this is what we should expect to see throughout history and in our world today. This is what the kingdom looks like. To the untrained eye, it seems meaningless, insignificant, and unimportant, easily thrown off easily dismissed. You might have experienced this as a Christian in relationships with colleagues or family or friends such that, oh, isn't it just lovely that you have this faith that holds you through life? You know, us enlightened people have worked out how to keep going, but, you know, good for you. There's just this sense in which it's just, you know, it's this fringy sort of unimportant thing, but it's something that you can have for yourself. Well, you look in the world and it seems like, oh, well, it's actually being marginalized and pushed to the side and, and oppressed through persecution, depending on which part of the world you go to. And yet, despite all worldly metrics and fierce circumstances, there is nothing that can restrain the power of the kingdom of God. Do not be fooled by the ways of this world. What seems unimpressive and insignificant will eclipse absolutely everything. This parable particularly has rich Old Testament imagery. If you come back to Daniel chapter 4, we find ourselves in the empire of Babylon. And there's a king, his name's Nebuchadnezzar. Anyone having a boy soon? Great name. But then again, he's kind of like the picture of evil, so we don't want to do that. Nebuchadnezzar, he's the the king of kings, the ruler of the empire that, that no one had ever seen before up to this point in history. And he has this dream in which he experiences a tree just kind of coming up in all of its beauty and fullness. It's larger than all other trees. It overshadows everything in its sight. And this language that you see in Matthew of birds coming and perching in its branches is used very specifically. Jesus is intentionally drawing our attention back to that. Why? Because when Nebuchadnezzar finally gets Daniel forward to sort of go, hey man, tell me about my dream, he just starts sweating and shaking. He's like, I don't want to tell the king that he's about to lose it. Because the outcome of this vision is that he effectively becomes a wild animal and his kingship starts to fall apart. Daniel says, look, this vision is really a picture of what's going to happen to you. Your tree is going to be trimmed and cut and sealed in a stump. And it will be completely and utterly destroyed before the eyes of everyone. Why is Jesus pulling us back to this? Because despite the impressive power of the most powerful kings of all of ancient history and all of modern times that we experience today, before the rule and kingdom of God, they will be cut down and left bare. The only tree that will will rise high such that birds perch in its branches is the kingdom of heaven. And so, here's what I take from this. Nick, take heart. When things seem small, when things seem difficult, God knows what He's doing. No one's stopping the kingdom. Often it's actually in the difficulty that God bursts forth His glory. Second takeaway 
it's not just how we should expect to see the world and see the kingdom going forward. We should actually see this within ourselves. The parable of the mustard seed is not a parable just for out there because we are invited into the kingdom. We should expect to see a mustard-shaped life in all of those who would call themselves citizens of the kingdom. Our spiritual journey, as we always say with familiar language, should look like Jesus, one in which humility and, and service and love characterize everything that we do, a, a care for the glory and honor of our Father, never to elevate ourselves but to find the hidden place, the subversive place where we live in step with God. And so this should be us. And the, the hard word that I'm hearing in my own soul is, Nick, get comfortable with being unimpressive. Get comfortable with being marginalized, with being insignificant. What if the truest and most important realities of your life are unseen by most people? And if they were seen, would be scorned and mocked by others. What if rather than a life of ambition and success and conquering the world for Jesus, what if instead it was a quiet life filled with prayer, contentment, becoming more and more like our Savior, living a life of, of persuasive love and witness such that these small seeds that begin in us and we sow in others might grow to eclipse anything we could do in our own strength. The kingdom is shaped like the mustard seed. Are you committed to the mustard seed life, dying to pride, dying to self, putting aside the things of this world for the treasures of heaven? That is what Jesus is describing to us here. But he moves on to this parable of the yeast, and it's very similar. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. I opened up my pantry this morning, and I found this one kilogram bag of flour, you know, sizable. This little footnote you might see in your Bible says 60 pounds, about 27 kilos. I thought, what if I had 27 little bags of flour, and I chucked them all into a bowl? And I looked around my kitchen, I thought, I don't think I have a bowl big enough for that. So I sort of imagined it. I thought, okay, big bowl, like this, you know, like this. Chuck all of your flour in. I mean, it's not crazy. You were in a bakery, there's flour going everywhere. But you've got this giant, giant vat of flour, and you walked in with a pinch of yeast, and you just dusted it over the top, and then you mixed it in thoroughly. No one would know. No one would see it. Yeah, give it some time, and you'll, you'll see exactly what's happened. You'll know that an incredible infection, an invasion, a subversive, if you will, reality has found itself under the surface of what you can see, but is working to achieve something bigger, that every little grain of flour, I don't know, if, is flour grain? I'm going to roll with it. Every grain of flour is suddenly pervaded in a way by the yeast, the tiniest bit has been put in there. And again, Jesus is this archetype. His ministry, as much as it did go forward, was unimpressive until he died and all his followers deserted him, apart from the women and a few apostles. You get to the point where he's risen from the dead. He's appeared to multiple people. It's a pretty big deal. And yet in Acts chapter 1, we're told that there are about 120 believers left who are seeking after his kingdom. And they're in this upper room, and they're waiting for the promise that he left them with, that the Holy Spirit would come. They're praying quietly, this small, tiny group, insignificant. It's Acts chapter 1. You know what Acts chapter 2 looks like? Tongues of fire 
just giant wind coming out of nowhere, guys being called drunk because they're speaking in all sorts of tongues that they've never spoken before, and Peter gets up and preaches his little heart out, and 5,000 men give their life to Christ, not including any women and children who may have been present, and suddenly this kingdom that started so small and insignificant is starting to spread out, and you read through the book of Acts, and there's persecution, and there's opposition, and there is fruit, and there is fruit, and there is fruit. There are churches planted, and the gospel starts to go forth, reaching out, 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 and that is the parable of the yeast. Again, what might seem small and insignificant under the power of God will go forth beyond what any person could ask or imagine. There's a missionary who I, I find inspiring from, from the bits that I've read of him. His name was Adoniram Judson. He was in the 19th century to Burma, which is now Myanmar. And he had a rough time. He saw his wife die. He remarried and watched his second wife die. He had 13 children and seven of them died before him. His closest friends who were there to support him in his journey, they died too. It took 12 years before he saw his first convert to Christ. And by the time he'd finished, he, he could point to this tiny, small little thing of people who were trying to follow Jesus in a very difficult environment. And he died. That was it. And yet to this day, there are literally millions of people in Myanmar and beyond who can trace their spiritual lineage back to this one man. And isn't that the way of the kingdom? That what is seemingly unimpressive and unimportant. This man just faithfully laboring in the power of God. What began as tiny and small pervades all things. Isn't that true today? As you look at the Chinese church actively persecuted and being forced to agree to communist dogma if they remain a public church, and yet in secret hidden places continues to go forth as men and women and children give their life to the living Lord Jesus in complete awareness that that puts their life on the line. We, we saw the, the walls go up in China in the 20th century, and all the missionaries kicked out, and we thought, well, this is it. This really essential part of the world is now closed off to Jesus. And as the walls came down, we found that there were millions of people who followed Jesus, and it was only growing. Parable of the yeast. You look to the continent of Africa, one of the, the largest destinations of Western missionaries in the past is now starting to eclipse the Western world in the amount of missionaries that it's sending out, because the gospel has come forth in power. You look to Iran, this country that is just one of the fiercest places on earth to call Jesus Lord, and yet it is the fastest statistically growing church in the modern world. Don't be fooled by what you see in worldly standards, because under the power of God in the kingdom of heaven, more than you can ever imagine. Now, how might this change your vision of God? How could this shift how you approach your life and your work with God. Mustard seed, yeasty people. I don't know if we should call ourselves yeasty people, but you know what I'm saying. Hidden, obscure, prayerful lives of love and witness. That is the way of the kingdom. Secondly, and more quickly, come to the parable of the hidden treasure in the pearl. This is the priceless kingdom. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. What is this saying? There is nothing of greater value in your entire life and in all of existence more than the kingdom of God. Very simple. 
the man discovered this treasure in this field, and you could just almost see the joy on his face and like this sense of like just looking around going, hope nobody saw me. I don't want anyone else to steal this treasure from me. So he reburies it. He like marks, X marks the spot. He's got like a pirate map. And he goes out to his mortgage broker and he does whatever he needs to do, sells everything he owns such that he has the assets to buy this thing. He, he walks deed in hand, just running as fast as that he can, gets to the spot, realizes he sold his shovel. And so he just get, you can just picture him on all fours, just digging at the dirt with his fingers. Why? Because he has found a treasure worth his entire life. That is what it is like in the kingdom of heaven. As your eyes slowly open more and more and your hearts grow warmer and warmer to the reality of Jesus, you realize everything else can be taken away from me and I have everything I could ever ask for in Him. The flip side of a beautiful treasure like this is the cost. The second part is the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. We've moved away from the treasure to the one who's doing the selling to find the treasure, and I think that's intentional. This merchant on the other side of the coin is selling everything that he has to buy it. It reminds me just a few chapters ahead in Matthew, and we'll get there, to that rich young ruler who asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus ultimately says to him, go and sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And then Matthew records the haunting lines. He went away sad because he couldn't do it. The kingdom is priceless and as such requires everything that we have. And Jesus just modeled that in everything that he did on this earth. He was the infinite, he is the infinite God who made all things and stepping into this world held on to nothing considered it all rubbish that he might step forward into the cross and crucifixion, into the resurrection and the kingdom that was his. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Therefore let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, notice this priceless, incredible joy to be had, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, most pain that I can ever think of, in scorning its shame, he then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is this parable calling us to? Are we willing to leave everything behind, to even embrace something such as the cross itself, such that we might set ourselves upon the joy that is set before us in the kingdom, because there is nothing better. This is a strong call This is what it means to be a disciple or a follower. It's that we would imitate Jesus. And so Matthew 16, as Jesus invites us, He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is a big call. Has anyone ever told you that? That when you choose to follow Jesus, this is what he's calling you to? Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Sounds grim, right? But he bids him come and die so that he might find the life that is truly life. That is what the kingdom of heaven is all about that we might give up the whole world, it seems, and yet receive more than we ever gave up in the first place. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
And so within that context, you know, the subversive kingdom and the priceless kingdom, we've got these bookends of the certain kingdom, the parable of the weeds and the parable of the nets. And they're very, very stark, and they seem to be quite confronting. We get language of the blazing furnace of all who sin and do evil being thrown into it. We get the Son of Man sending out His angels, and it's not given to us primarily to scare us or confront us, but to embolden us. Given what we see as the kingdom goes out in its hidden way, and as we see how valuable it is, how do we make sense of the world given what it truly is? Well, the parable of the weeds, verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Notice, it's called the parable of the weeds, and yet Jesus says it's actually the parable about the man who sowed good seed. It's not supposed to be about this obstacle and this enemy primarily. It's about the seed that has been sown that is good. And so that is what we're looking at. Jesus, the Son of Man, sowing the seed that is the kingdom in His field, and those are the people in the kingdom. But while He was sleeping, everyone was sleeping, the enemy, that is the Satan, the, op- the opposition to God comes, and He sows weeds among the wheat. And when the weed sprouts, it forms heads, and then the weeds also, sorry, the wheat sprouts, and then the weeds also appear. The servants say, should we go and try and get rid of the weeds? And, and the master, with complete clarity and collection, knowing exactly what to do, says, no, no, if we let everything grow forth, we will not lose any of the wheat. And that is the heart of God, that He would not lose any of those who have come to Him. He says, no, no, just let it all rise to the surface. The good will grow, and the bad will grow alongside it. And at the end of the age is the language, we'll do the work of harvesting, and we'll take aside those that are weeds and burn them up, and we'll put together those that are wheat, and they will be brought into the barn. Well, the first thing that I take away from this is that the state of the world isn't a surprise or a threat to Jesus. Have you ever been frustrated with God? You're like, God, I came to you, you gave me life, you forgave me, I've seen some awesome things, but now things seem to be falling apart. You look at the world at large, and there's brokenness, and there's difficulty, and you go, God, what are you doing? And yet Jesus, very carefully, in one of His first parables, makes sure we know He knows. This is exactly what He intended, because He desires to see the weeds and the wheat come forth, much that He might never lose the wheat. The kingdom has arrived in Jesus. He's no, he's no um, foreigner to the pain of this world. They killed Him. They nailed him to a cross, and that was the path of the kingdom coming. And there is a moment, though, when Jesus will come again, not in shame, but in glory. It says, verse 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. This is a promise of justice. This is a promise of peace. And so, what are we supposed to take from this? Well, God's got it under control. Yes, you might experience the impact of, of a weed alongside you, or many weeds. You might not even be able to see wheat next to you because there's so much weed and difficulty and pain coming up and, and, and impacting your life. And yet, as you see this, Jesus says, I know what's going on. The second takeaway, and I think this is why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed, is that regardless of the weeds, the kingdom's plants will grow. Jesus has not forsaken you. Jesus will not leave you despite what you are going through or what you may experience. His wheat will be secure. And so we don't flounder and flop about in the conflict of this world. 
We do have moments in our brokenness where we doubt, but we come back again to the Word of Jesus. There is no doubt in His mind. There is a moment to come, an age to come, a day to come, and that is when we know that justice and peace will reign in the kingdom as it was meant to be. And so don't be fooled by the monotony. Don't be fooled by the pain, whether you're in the ease or the difficulty. Every single day is a day that we are closer to that day. That is what we look forward to. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he finishes his set of parables with the parable of the net. Again, very similar. Uses the same language, end of the age, the angels will come, the wicked, the righteous, the blazing furnace, all of these things, but there's a shift. Rather than this whole build up to that age to come, the net focuses simply on the moment of sifting. And this, I think, is very intentional from Jesus, and it is provocative, and it is confronting. Jesus is looking us, in a way, in the eye as he tells this story and says, what is happening in you? What is the reality of your heart? What is the reality of your soul? He's effectively saying the kingdom of heaven is like a moment at the very end of the age when every single person is like a fish, and they'll be caught up and brought forth and brought before the master fisherman. And those that are decided to be good will be kept and held onto, but those that are bad will be thrown out. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, but the wicked will be thrown into the blazing furnace. It's strong language, and it's very intentionally strong because this is the reality of the kingdom. Jesus holds no punches. And this is not to suggest that if you don't measure up to what God has called you to, He's going to chuck you in the bin. We've already covered every part of this kingdom as an invitation to repent, to receive forgiveness and life and grace. The gospel oozes forth from these truths. But from the moment where you receive Jesus and enter the kingdom and that final day to come, what's going to happen in the middle? Matthew is very careful to hold these two things together, the grace of Jesus and the call to persevere to the very end of the age. And so the question we need to ask ourselves, if we're truly serious about this treasure in the field, if we're willing to sell everything that we have and give everything of our lives over to this kingdom, where will we be on that final day? Will we follow Jesus to the end? It's not a call that you might be Jesus, but that you might set your eyes upon Him and live your life entirely towards Him. It's a question of perseverance. We must follow our King's path. We must live our King's life. And so rather than being surprised when the net comes and scoops us up, we ask ourselves the question now. It's a grace of God. How am I living? How long has it been since you met Jesus? Does your life still reflect Him? How long was it since you received the kingdom of heaven with joy? Are you still living in that kingdom? Or does it seem that your life reflects more the kingdom of this world? What kind of fish are you? Are you a good fish or a bad fish? These are the parables that Jesus offers us to help see, believe, live, and experience the kingdom of heaven. And rather than assessing them, we receive them. We allow them to filter into our souls and ask us hard questions such that we might live in the fullness of what God has for us. So whether you're feeling struck by how subversive the kingdom is, how the the mustard seed starts and grows, or whether you're feeling like, man, that the kingdom is so valuable, I need to leave everything behind. Maybe this net is the call to you. You need to turn once more, repent, turn away, 
because the kingdom of heaven is near. However you sit, wherever you are, my prayer is that these parables would find their way deep into your soul and might shape your life. Can I, can I pray for that now? Let's, let's do that. Jesus, you tell these parables with kindness, offering us insight into these things that have been hidden since the creation of the world because you long for us to live in the fullness of your kingdom. Thank you that you issue this, issue this call to repent, to leave it all behind. And so, God, you know our souls better than we know ourselves. We ask for your power, your Holy Spirit, to encourage and convict and guide us forward that we might fix our eyes on Jesus and live the life that he has called us to. We ask all this for his glory and for our good. Amen.